If you are able, please rise for the reading of God's word. Today's passage is Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29, which can be found on page 974 of the Pew Bible. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under our guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is God's word. Please remain standing as we sing number 697, In Christ There Is No East or West. I am thrilled to be here with you this morning. I've been away. Jessica and I have been away for much of the summer, getting to spend a lot of time with our family in Colorado. And uh, while that was just a tremendous blessing to us and something that we are thankful for, uh, we are also glad to be back at home with you, with our church family this morning. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I just want to express to you that I'm, I'm thrilled to be with you and a part of worship alongside you this morning, even though we've been away for a long time. Recently, I saw online someone posted, and in a, in a, it was a joke, but I think that it applies. He said, our, I think our youth pastor is a lot like the solar eclipse. Occasionally, he shows up, and he's not very bright. And uh, I felt like that maybe applies because we've been away for so long. Um, like I say, we're grateful for the time that we had with our family, but we're glad to be back with you. Jessica and I spent a lot of time on the road this summer. We were driving a lot, and one of the things that we got to do uh, on our road trips this summer was use uh, this deck of cards that, that we have that, that each has a question on it that's designed to start a conversation, uh, to help people get to know each other or get to know each other better. And the questions are sorted into five different levels. Level one questions are things like, what is your most memorable haircut? And even as I say that, I'm sure that many of you are either remembering your worst haircut or someone else's, maybe your husband or wife's worst haircut, but you would never say that. There are questions like, uh, what's a song that you could never get tired of? But as you get a little further into levels two, three, four, and five, the questions get a little bit more personal. Level three questions are things like, what qualities do you hope to pass along to your children? Obviously, that's a little bit more of an intense question to answer. But level five questions are things like, what is one part of yourself that you are beginning to accept instead of fight against? Cards from level five are harder to answer. And some of them, I couldn't answer at all. I I, I was racking my brain trying to come up with a good answer to to the difficult questions that we were discussing along the way. And sometimes I just couldn't. And I think Partly, that's because level one questions have to do with our preferences, the things that we like and don't like, and the people that we like and don't like. I think we have lots of practice at identifying and vocalizing our opinions on things that we like and don't like. But the more challenging questions are not just about what we like and don't like. They begin to get at the root of who we are and what makes us who we are. Getting to the very bottom of our identity can be a challenge. It can be hard to look inward beyond our opinions to try and figure out who we really are and what makes us tick. 
either because we don't like the answers that we find or because we don't know the answers. The two church or the, 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 the collection of churches in the region of Galatia uh, were having an identity crisis of sorts. They were stuck between two worlds. They had heard the good news that the Messiah had come, that he had died and risen, and they rejoiced in the promise of the gospel for them. Throughout the region of Galatia, people were coming to faith. But the church's expansion into Asia Minor did not come without conflict and confusion. Paul and his traveling companions had arrived and preached the gospel. They had planted churches. But sometime after this, another set of teachers had arrived. And these teachers also came to tell people about Christ. But their message was different. They claimed that for anyone to be acceptable to God, he or she must become Jewish first. Any convert to Christianity must first observe Jewish law in order to be fully part of God's people. For men, this meant circumcision, a ceremonial rite which Jewish sons experienced as a sign and seal of their belonging to God's people. To the Galatian converts, this made some sense. Jesus was Jewish, after all, and the Jewish scriptures had anticipated his coming. Christ, it seemed, was the Jewish Savior, so in order to be saved by him, it made some sense that you had to be Jewish and observing Jewish law. This was a somewhat common line of reasoning in the first century, and the fingerprints of its influence are all over the New Testament. And this morning, as we examine a passage from the book of Galatians and Paul's response to this teaching, uh, I, I know that we will see that the fingerprints of this teaching exist in our lives and in our hearts today. So before we do that, I hope that you'll join with me in prayer this morning, that God would move, that he would open our ears to hear the gospel. Let's pray together. Father God, we confess this morning that we are distracted. There are so many things um, that are clamoring for the attention of our hearts this morning, and our desire is to focus on you, to hear your word this morning, to meditate on the promise of the gospel this morning, to recognize not only who we were, but who we are in you, and to rejoice in response. God, we know that this is a work that only you can do. And so we come before you this morning, boldly asking that you would dwell with us, that you would dwell in us, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear your voice this morning, to obey your word this morning, to rejoice for your mercy this morning. God, we ask these things. We come before you this morning with our praises and with this prayer in the name of your Son. Amen. The Galatians and other first century believers were caught between two worlds. The first was the world that they had known, the world of the Mosaic law, which governed their culture, their behavior, and everything that they needed to do in order to be ritually pure and acceptable in God's presence. The second world was utterly foreign and confusing to them. It was the world of freedom from the law. So after leaving the region of Galatia with a handful of healthy and growing churches, Paul hears about this confusion. 
and that is the reason that the book of Galatians exists. It is a sternly worded letter to his friends in these churches, friends whom he refers to as both foolish and bewitched by false teaching. I love the book of Galatians because Paul is fired up as he's writing it. The design of the entire letter is to correct the poisonous notion that anyone must mend themselves before God will accept them. And in the passage we're focusing on today, Paul uses a familiar longing to make this point. When I was in high school in ninth and 10th grade, many of my friends were getting their driver's licenses. I was one of the youngest in my grade, and so I had to wait a lot longer than many of my friends to get my driver's license. And I remember feeling like that little piece of plastic would absolutely make my life so much better. It would change everything. I wouldn't have to ask for rides anymore, right? I wouldn't have to wait on people anymore. I wouldn't have to worry about anyone else's schedule because I would just be able to go and do what I needed to do on my own. And I I know that many of our students are, you know, feeling and experiencing that You know, they can associate with exactly what I'm describing. I felt like as soon as I got my driver's license, I would have freedom to do what I wanted and what I needed to do. And then I remember thinking, after I got my driver's license, I can't wait to graduate from high school and go to college. I'm not going to have to ask if I can go out with my friends anymore. I won't have a curfew anymore. And if I want, I can eat cookies and cool it for dinner, which I did And I remember thinking, I will have freedom when I graduate from high school and go to college. But then I remember thinking, man, I cannot wait to be done with college. No more homework, no more studying. I can travel, I can have a dog. I will have freedom. Now, however, you know, many years later, I'm somehow still in school. And I'm not allowed to eat cookies and cool it for dinner after all. But those feelings of longing to grow up and have freedom are feelings that I feel like we can all relate to. And I think that's why Paul uses this language to explain how things used to be. In verse 23, he says, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you're using this morning, the phrasing might be a little different than what I just read to you. In fact, there are quite a few ways that this verse has been translated because the word which the ESV translates held captive has a range of meaning. It can mean in prison, like a criminal would be imprisoned, but it can also be used to describe someone keeping watch over someone else or guarding them and providing security. In fact, The word that is translated held captive in the book of Galatians chapter 3 is translated in Philippians 4, 7 a little differently. When Paul writes that the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. It's to hold something securely and tightly. So many translations favor something like the law held us in custody or the law kept us. It's a boundary, but it is a protective boundary, much like the boundaries that kept me from getting behind the wheel of a car before I was old enough, or which my parents enforced to keep me safe, or which Jessica still enforces to keep me from eating cookies for dinner. The law that God gave his people was not simply an imprisonment, but a protection. And Paul expands on this idea by explaining the law in another way, using another word which has given translators some difficulty. 
And so the ESV says that the law was a guardian, while many other translations say things like trainer or schoolmaster or guide. Sometimes when there is such a diversity of translations as there is here in verse 24, it's because the word or concept in question does not really have an equivalent in English. That's not the only reason that this happens, but that is the case here. The word Paul is using to describe the law is a a very specific job title that a servant would hold in the house of a wealthy family. This person would be responsible for the children of the the house as a sort of combination tutor, mentor, guardian, and disciplinarian throughout childhood and adolescence, kind of like a nanny on steroids. We don't really have that. We don't have a word that's specific for that. And so translators have done their best to encapsulate the idea, and that gives us a range of words across different translations. For kids, this person became like a member of the family and like a surrogate parent to them. And Paul uses this common reference to further explain the role which the law played prior to Christ's coming. For the people of God, the law was all in one, a guardian, a tutor, and a disciplinarian. The law could not save. It could not bring God's people out from under the penalty of sin, just as a hired guardian or tutor cannot give the inheritance. But it paved the way for God's people to be saved in another way. In verse 24, we read, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In order that we might be justified by faith. Though obedience to the law could not save, it made a way for God's people to be saved by faith. And likewise, our failure to keep the law will not prevent us from being saved by faith. Instead, God's rigorous commands for his people prepare them for his grace. The law's principal use, uh, right? Martin Luther wrote that the, the law's principal use is to reveal death so that it might be seen and known how horrible it is. The law is our necessary guardian so that we might be justified by faith because meditation on the law gives a thirst for grace and life. The law proves that we cannot save ourselves and that God is serious about sin. And so it drives God's people to something else. Earlier in this chapter of Galatians, earlier in Galatians 3, Paul reminded his friends that Abraham himself, the father of their faith, was counted righteous on account of his faith. The law could never, in the history of God's people, give life to the dead, freedom to the oppressed, or renewal to the broken, but it does fuel the desire to receive them. It illumines the desperate reality which the Israelites, the the Galatians, and we find ourselves in. Namely, that the brokenness that we experience in this world is beyond our capacity to repair. The law is the lens through which we clearly see the gulf of sin standing between us and our Creator. And it, bring, and it brings glory to the one who has crossed that gulf to bring us home, which Paul describes in the remainder of our passage this morning in three ways. First, in Christ Jesus, all of you, all you, you let me start over. First, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
In the first century, this was revolutionary language. Paul was absolutely, and, and the first century church, they were absolutely, absolutely preaching a message that was absolutely new in the world that rather than deities ruling from a distant or impersonal realm, Christians understood God to be near, personal, affectionate, and even fatherly. God's people are not merely his worshipers, but members of his household. That status is not one we earn by our obedience to any law or stipulation. It is established on the basis of being united with Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, Paul writes. This passage underlines the importance of baptism as an important part of Christian life, but baptism is not the thing that establishes Christian life. Paul's whole point in this letter is that obedience to some rule does not secure any of us a place in God's house. Nothing we accomplish makes us members of God's household. No law that we obey makes us his children. Instead, his grace secures these things for us, and we respond with obedience and with rejoicing. Elsewhere, Paul describes this process using the terminology of adoption. We have been grafted into God's family, made true members of his household. And like adopted children, we have not earned this status, but received it because our God is love. Our most strenuous efforts could not have secured it. Even the most faithful believer could not earn it. Everyone is equally in need of mercy, and no one has any advantage, which leads Paul to his second point in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul quickly identifies three things which have traditionally divided people. Race, economic status, and gender. Much of what we call history is the story of conflict on the basis of these dividing lines. It's a tragically familiar narrative to us. And even though our societies have been trying to overcome these conflicts for generations, for centuries, we have failed. In fact, lately, it seems like things are getting even worse. We all thought that 2016 was crazy. Like, we all thought, it's, it's not going to get any wilder than this, right? This is just a crazy year. Thank goodness it's over. But then 2017 started and said, watch this. <laughs> you haven't even had to deal with Nazis yet. I think that these dividing lines exist because we are broken. And the brokenness of this world dismays our ability. It is beyond our capacity. We are good at dividing ourselves along these lines, at noticing what makes us different from one another and surrounding ourselves with what is familiar to us. But the gospel cultivates unity in spite of our tendencies to divide ourselves. Being in Christ transcends and transforms all of our social categories and brings us together as the church, united as those who could not have saved themselves yet have been given new life. Paul is not necessarily saying that uh, race does not no longer exists, that gender no longer exists, that social 
economic statuses no longer exist. Of course, all of those things still exist. But in the, in the gospel, in the church, within the community of the saints of God, those things no longer divide us. This week, some of our high schoolers went downtown to serve with Starlight Ministries, an outreach that Westgate supports. We spent an afternoon meeting and praying with the homeless of Boston, distributing clothing and hygiene supplies. It was an emotionally taxing experience for me and many of our students. It's emotionally, it's, it's difficult for many reasons, but it is encouraging in its own way. After our shift at Starlight ended, we debriefed with some of the ministry staff and, uh, of, of, of that outreach, and several of our students mentioned that they made similar observations, that they were surprised to realize that these people that they met were not really very different, not as different as maybe they thought that they might be. They're really just, they're just people who are worthy of dignity and respect, who we're called to love and serve, who are in really the same eternal situation that they are. For some of our students, visiting with a homeless person downtown uh, this week was probably the furthest afield that they've ever been culturally. Yet the people that they met were just ordinary people. I've had the opportunity to travel to quite a few places around the world, and I feel like I've realized the same thing in meeting people from all sorts of different cultures and backgrounds. There are many things that make us different, but they are small in comparison to the things that make us the same. All of us are equally in need of something we cannot attain or achieve for ourselves. All of us are stained by sin and have fallen short of the holiness of our Creator. So when Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, that there is no male and female, he is reminding the Galatians that no one has any advantage. He underscores that point by saying, you are all sons of God through faith, in verse 26. In fact, the word all is fronted in that sentence, meaning that because Greek is sort of different than English, you can rearrange all the words, but you can still have the, the, same, the, the same meaning, except for the fact that you can, because you can rearrange the words, you can put words at the very front of the sentence to, to give an emphasis. And Paul begins this sentence with the word all. It doesn't work in English, so we can't do that in our English Bibles. But Paul is getting something across, underlining, putting it in bold. All of you are sons of God through faith. He is writing to a diverse audience. Yet he makes sure to remind them that all of them came came in the door of God's kingdom by faith in Christ's work and not their own. Eternally speaking, no race, no status, no gender is more able to rescue itself. Instead, as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, we have trusted him to do what we could not have done. We've put our faith in his work and not our own. The Judaizers in Galatia were demanding that Gentiles observe the Jewish law in order to be acceptable to God. But the law could never save. It could never grant the favor of God. So in Christ, we rejoice in our diversity. The God we worship is not confined to a fraction of humanity. Instead, the promise of the gospel is for all and speaks to the ultimate need of all people in all cultures. For the racially charged situation in Galatia, this was a stunning turn of events. But it, 
but it is absolutely critical that the people in Galatia understand the message. And Paul seals that message with his final comment in verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. For generations, for centuries, the Jewish people had considered themselves favored by God. They divided the world into two groups. Those who were lucky enough to be born Jewish and a part of God's people and everyone else. There were only two races that they identified. Those who were Jewish and those who weren't Jewish. We even have copies of ancient manuscripts, we, we, scrolls that people have discovered of prayers from around the time of the first century in which Jewish people thanked God that in his mercy he had not made them Gentiles. Because he was merciful, he had given them the opportunity to be Jewish. For Jewish people in the first century, family lineage was critically important. To be a part of God's people was to be a part of this family. That's something that seems to be pretty popular nowadays, too. Not in the same way, but I feel like I see commercials all the time for things like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, which is a genetic sort of test. And these are services which allow you to navigate and identify where you stand in relationship to your family tree and your, your genetics, what, what people you're descended from, so that you can find out you know, that you're actually related to you know, Genghis Khan or something, or that really, uh, you know, I just found out that I'm Irish or something like that. I thought that I was Scottish this whole time. And I, I mean, I guess that sounds cool, right? To know where you're from. That is, I mean, that's an important thing to recognize our heritage, but I don't know what discernible difference that would make in my life if I found out that I was Irish and not Scottish. I wouldn't necessarily stop wearing a kilt or start wearing a kilt or whatever, depending on what I found out about my DNA, right? But they are popular because people like to know where they're from. We need to know. It's important for us to know where we're from. But the ancient Jewish people traced their lineage back to Abraham, who had received God's promise and blessing. And they knew that because they were a part of Abraham's bloodline, that they were recipients of God's ongoing faithfulness. But then Paul came along to burst their bubble. Instead of an earthly birthright, Christians become the sons and daughters of God according to the promise of the gospel, which we take hold of by faith. It has nothing to do with our lineage, with our bloodlines. In fact, our blood has nothing to do with whether or not we inherit the promises made to Abraham. It has nothing to do with our faithfulness to the law or our ability to obey the commands of God. Instead, we are here this morning, called the sons and daughters of God and heirs of the promise, and unified in our response of worship because of the obedience of another and the blood that he spilled on our behalf. In Christ, God has fulfilled the promise which the law revealed to be necessary. This passage puts the redemptive timeline on display. The law was the guardian of God's people until the fulfillment of the promise. And now, by no effort of our own, we are the redeemed people of God. This is a message we must preach to ourselves daily because it conflicts with the habits of our hearts. We are wired to think in terms of law. It is our most natural way of thinking that if we do what God wants us to do, then he is obligated to give us what we want in return. We justify ourselves by thinking, at least I haven't messed up as badly as that person over there. 
We stoke our pride by considering how well we've behaved today, this week, this month, or this year. Or we despair over the ways in which we have failed. Just keep a mental tally of how well we think we're doing. I hear this sort of thing all the time from students, although I don't think it's an issue of age. I think it's something we all do. It's just that I hang out with students more than most other people. We say things like, I've been on the wrong track, and I'm going to get closer to God this year, as if it's like a New Year's resolution. I'm going to get things back on track. I'm going to, to do better. I'm going to fix this. But the structure of this passage helps clarify the issue. Verses 23 and 24 describe who we were, imprisoned, held captive to the law, waiting on freedom, waiting to grow up, waiting to be justified by faith. Verses 25 through 29 describe who we are now in Christ. Sons and daughters of God, one in Christ Jesus, heirs according to the promise, present tense verbs, describe that we are already justified by faith. We are already acceptable to God. We did not earn our way in the door. We were carried through it. So rather than working to earn what we already have, we work to worship the one who gave us what we never could have won. The process of sanctification begins with our realizing that the work of justification is finished. Justification is the process of God overcoming his hostility toward us, which is completed in the cross. When God looks at you, he does not see you in your sin. He sees the perfect obedience of his son. Sanctification, on the other hand, is the process of God overcoming our hostility toward him, which is underway even now. We do not save ourselves. We are not renewing ourselves, but Instead, we rejoice in the one who does. We are already God's sons and daughters. And that changes our identity. It changes who we are. It can be hard to get to the bottom of who we are, to know who we are at our core. Sometimes we don't like the answer we see. Sometimes we don't know the answer. It can be hard to get to know our identity completely. But the promise of the gospel is that we have been made new. That we are continually being made new from our very foundation up. And so we must preach the gospel to ourselves daily, reminding ourselves daily of the truths of the promise of the gospel. To consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body and make you obey its passions. Do not present your member to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have already been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Would you pray with me? God, we ask this morning that as we remind ourselves the truths of the gospel, that your spirit would dwell in us and cause them to take root. We know that our fickle hearts are prone to wander. 
that we seek to justify ourselves because that's the condition of our sinful heart to do that. And so we must preach this to ourselves daily, but we ask, Lord, that that by your Spirit you would cause these promises and these truths to take root. The fact that we are already your sons and daughters grants us permission to be in your presence even now, to bring our requests to you even now. And so we do that, asking that you would give us confidence in this truth, that our lives would be shaped and renewed by knowing that your Spirit dwells in us, that we are free from slavery to sin because we belong to you, because we have been made new. God, help us to recognize who we were who we are in you. We ask these things in your son's name.